Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine. Hi, everybody. It's Mike Pannell, and welcome to the AEP Practice Life Series. I'd like to thank, before we get started, Beringer Engelheim for their support of these podcasts. And before we get any further, let's talk about the title and the panel. So sort of a bittersweet <laughs> recording the podcast. I was hoping to be at the AEP, and I've been involved in the Business News Hour, and this is my first year not being involved for a while. And I would like to say hello again to Drs. Amy Grace and Caitlin Daly who joined me in 2020 and brand new member of the panel, Dr. Kelly Zutanian from California. Welcome all three. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So, you know, listening to it and, you know, preparing for this podcast, listening to it, I'm glad they recorded. It was such a great series. You, you covered so many fascinating subjects. We had the luxury of going a little bit long because I wasn't there for to present for the next speaker. So you had a great Q&A session. So all in all, it was a great, great uh, session. And, and I thought that, you know, with this podcast is let's sort of touch upon some of the highlights of it, because as I was listening to it, I don't know, as you were putting it together, if you sort of caught the theme, but to me, it was sort of like two big sections. There's one, let's talk about the economy and how the equine economy and how the veterinary profession is doing. But balancing that on the other hand was this challenge that we're having in the profession of attracting and retaining veterinarians. And I thought, let's really dig into that. So before we get in too deep, though, let's do some introductions for those who were not at the AP or just listening in just to know who we're all talking about. We'll start with Dr. Amy Grace. And Amy, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was a uh, ambulatory practitioner in upstate New York for over 25 years and a practice owner there a partner in a big practice. And uh, then I got my MBA and uh, decided to start doing some business education and business consulting for other veterinarians, uh, just to make a difference in a different way. As a part of that, I moved to Montana, where I've lived since 2015. Excellent. And opposite to that, in terms of practices, uh, Dr. Caitlin Daly in Maine. So tell us a bit about yourself, Caitlin. I own a solo general practice in Maine. It's small and I intend to keep it that way. So I will always be solo. I'm actually one of Amy's initial decade one members. So she has instilled a passion for change in this profession. And I'm always happy to speak about that. Excellent. And then Kelly, you've been part of the uh, Practice Life podcast before. We talked about uh, using technicians in practice. So those who didn't listen to that, why don't you tell us about yourself and your practice? Thanks for having me. I am going to start with a passion, which is mountain biking. So I will say I am a mountain biker, sometimes first, and then a veterinarian second. I have a sixth doctor practice in the San Francisco Bay Area that 
focuses on a lot of performance courses, but we we do a bit of everything and um, excitedly have alternative work schedules that really kind of are trying to accommodate a bit of what we talked about in the business news hour this year. Super passionate, just like doctors Grice and Daly about helping to make sure that we are doing the things that we need to do to keep this industry sustainable and I'm happy to have another opportunity to, to talk about it. Excellent. As I was listening to uh, your presentation, so about a month after you actually did it live, you know, we start off with the COVID. What a surprise. And just talking about, I think Omicron was just putting its tentacles out there. It caught me just like, wow, what a difference a month makes. But I don't think any of us really want to spend much time talking about COVID because I'm exhausted talking about it. But Amy, you did a lot of discussion about the economy in general and the veterinary profession. So looking back on the presentation, what were some of the highlights that you had? Just talk, let's talk about the economy first, and then we'll talk about veterinary profession. Well, you know, despite two years of COVID and counting, the stock market has done amazingly well. And one of the things we know is that when people have stocks and the stocks are doing well, they may not sell any of them, but they feel richer. And so they spend more money. The fact that the stock market did so well, despite all of this was such a boom. It was really quite wonderful. But of course, we've got people that were unemployed. But some of the good news about that was that uh, horse owners tend to be more highly educated. And when one looks deeply into the unemployment figures, those with a high school diploma or less were up about 20% at the worst month of, you know, the pandemic for unemployment. And yet those with a bachelor's degree were like only unemployed. Their rate was like around 8% and then quickly went to 3.5%. So our clients mostly didn't experience the same degree of unemployment. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. And reflected in just basically the the horse economy in general in the veterinary economy, because I was looking at some statistics in terms of just veterinary practices, the demand for veterinarians. It's just off the chart, it just seems like. It absolutely is. In fact, I had done a survey right before the AAEP that showed that some practices were doing exceptionally better. And that's what was found across the board and by the AVMA in mostly companion animal practices, but practices across the country were up in revenue, in visits, in services demanded. Um, And in this survey, I found the same to be true in equine practice. Yeah, what was interesting in the AVMA surveys was just, and you brought it up too, is that a lot of the demand was an increase by existing clients. It wasn't so many new clients like everybody thinks, but it was just like the clients that we have are doing more. Exactly. They were demanding more services so that their the average invoice increased. Yeah. And then tied into that, we are seeing that you're talking about horse sales and just the prices of horses seem to be going. It's just a big rebound after 2020. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you think about people were working remotely, people had more time because they weren't commuting. They weren't buying coffee and lunch or going out to dinner. They had extra money. They had extra time. And I think even more importantly, I think there was a lot of reflection about what was most important to them. And as a result, people 
who really found themselves wanting to spend more time with their horses and other people thought, gosh, I always wanted to get into horses. And so they did. Yeah. And so I, I think it could be wonderful for our industry. Yeah. What's good is it's not like, or we hope it's not that you buy a horse and then it's a disposable thing that you're going to change something next year. So if they're going to get into horses now or reintroduce themselves to horses that hopefully they're going to carry on for that for a while. And then you commented how sale prices for thoroughbreds had gone up, prices for horses in general have gone up. I know my own practice, I mean, we're just been shocked at how many pre-purchases we've been doing the last few months. So on that part of the economy, not everybody's been as blessed as we are in the, in the veterinary profession, but we seems to be doing okay. We do. We absolutely do. One of the shocking things I thought was a, in the, the horse sales, which are a very traditional, conservative kind of thing where you lead the horses out, everybody's there in person. And there were so many online sales and the online sales that occurred increased in 2021 over 2020. And I think they're here to stay. Yeah, for sure. So let's shift a little bit because I think we can talk and we'd be really excited about the general economy, the veterinary profession. But when I was listening to it, I was like, there's a common thread that goes through this. And we look at, they're calling it the great resignation. Uh, primarily in the United States, and it's just people quitting their jobs. But when I was listening to it with the the vet profession, it really looked at, and the question I always have is, is this a challenge of not enough veterinarians, or is this a retention problem? And it seems to me, and, and, and Amy, you brought it up in the general economy, and, and I think, Caitlin, you brought up some of this too, is that people are just quitting a lot of this is wages or they're just not enjoying their jobs, what have you. But in the equine profession, it seems to be both. It's an attraction and a retention problem. So I know Kelly and Caitlin, you talked a lot about it. And I'll start with you, Caitlin. What were some of the overarching themes or, or ideas that you got when you were doing your research for the presentation? So I read an article that actually described it less as like the great resignation and more so as the great discontent. And I think that that highlights the theme is that people are not happy in their particular jobs, that a big theme is a lack of autonomy. People want to have influence and impact in the day-to-day -day of the practice. They want to be involved in decision makings and be able to have some sort of an influence. I think also... We touched on this very briefly last year, but just toxic work environments and what we used to have to put up with uh, in order to be an equine veterinarian because there were so few jobs, especially when uh, Kelly and I graduated, but now there's a surplus. And so you no longer kind of have to put up with it. You have the ability to walk away. There's a, a number of practices that are evolving that are becoming much more progressive. So it's becoming easier to leave the less progressive ones behind. I can remember when we first started doing the business news hour, uh, I'm talking like 10, 12 years ago, it was just after the great recession. And then the statistics were opposite. Like there were so many young vets looking for jobs and there were no jobs. And as a practice owner, you really could have the pick of what you wanted. It's the other way around. Like the power is in the new vets and the, and the employees. It's, as a practice owner, there's not a lot of power with you other than, as you just said, how great can you make your practice that people want to join or stay at? And Kelly, how about yourself in terms of the 
we'll get into more specifics, but just overall, what really resonated with you when you were doing your research onto this? One of the big things that came to my mind as I was thinking through it and considering why we have such a retention issue in equine medicine is thinking about those top reasons that people leave in the first place. It's for safety. It's for the debt to income ratio of these students. It's the culture of the practice and it's the ER coverage. Well, all of those things were negatively impacted as we've lost support staff to keep us safe, as we lose veterinarians and have more people needing us for ER coverage. So it, you know, it's pressure from both sides where people are just, they're just taking it at all angles. And it's really, it's exacerbating that situation. But I think that it's also great. And we talked about what an amazing opportunity if we take advantage of this moment to say, people need us. There is a demand for our services. It's time for us to reconfigure our expectations for the clients that we deal with, the expectations that we have from them. And in turn, build up and improve the practices that we are bringing new employees onto. So blessing and a curse, I think, with the current culture that we have going. So let's look at attracting uh, people to the profession. So there's a number of factors and we'll, we'll try to go through as many as we can. And some of this will overlap with retention. And so, Amy, you brought up the statistic of how many AVMA accredited university students are going to equine practice. And it's when you thought last year couldn't get any lower, it got lower. So I think the statistic was around 1% this year, 1.4. Uh, 1% was in 2019, and it bounced up to 1.4, which wow. still is not a lot of students. But the thing that we do need to remember is that that does not include students that entered internships in equine. And in 2019, the AVMA senior survey actually looked and called out in the article how many students did that, and it was about 130. So we had about 40 students that entered equine practice directly from veterinary school and an additional 130 that started internships. The bad news is many of them did not stay in equine practice. Right. And I think there's a pretty Big reason for that, when you look at those senior surveys in 2019, you know, the average salary for a companion animal person that just came out of uh, veterinary school and took a job in companion animal, average salaries were over 90000 Same thing in 2020. But unfortunately, uh, the study in 2020, they actually looked at it by gender. And in the companion animal field, there was no difference in the average salary between males and females in companion animal. I mean, there was a little difference, but not much. And in equine, the four males that entered equine practice directly from school were offered an average salary of 75,000 and the 26 females, an average of 56,000. It's totally unacceptable. I was watching the recording and I had to pause it and I was like, I could not believe it. It was such a discrepancy. If we have a female predominant generation coming into veterinary profession, no wonder they don't want to go to equine or that kind of gap. That's crazy. Yes, it certainly is. And then, of course, every year we've got to talk about debt. 
And uh, I forget who talked about it, but I took down some thoughts like, first of all, 17% of students graduate with no debt. My first like, how does that happen? <laughs> but then, so uh, the one figure I put down there is the ratio of debt to salary is about 2.6 times uh, debt than it is a starting salary. And that's for all veterinarians. That's through the AVMA. For equine, it's much worse. Really? So that gets into we've got to do a lot better job to make us more attractive. And so one of the factors you guys brought up was hours and the on-call. So when you're looking at a companion animal practice who are paying more money for starting salary, probably are working less hours, probably don't have to do a lot of emergency work. We have to have a compelling argument for them to uh, come into practice. We do. The one thing you folks talk about that we didn't talk about in previous years when we talk about attracting people was the diversity, equality, inclusion. And so we talked about that. I know the AAP is working on that. I forgot who brought it up, but I'd love to touch base on that more in terms of uh, the diversity and getting our profession more diverse. Yeah, I think uh, that was one of the topics that I took on and we all talked about. And, and one of the key takeaways that we discussed about, you know, why, why is there such a lack of diversity? And I think part of it is exactly what Dr. Grace brought up earlier on in our conversation. And that's who can afford these horses and who can afford to take up horseback riding. And so I think that we have this socioeconomic issue with bringing in a more diverse student population and working population. Um, We also have, I know at least in my area, everything has become so concentrated that just access to our equine patients and access to horses as we're growing up has become more and more difficult. And so it's fantastic. I think that there's actually now a focus on it through AAEP. There's a strong bit of research and backing that shows that the more diverse our groups can be, the more opinions, the more different opportunities for problem solving or coming at you know these projects can really make a huge difference. I hope that we do it because I think young people seeing a more diverse population of veterinarians out at the farm will only help to do more to show them I can be a veterinarian. That could be me. I think it's also important to discuss, because this was mentioned on the retention panel, that some people fall in love with horses for the first time in vet school. And our industry can be rather clicky. No, And uh, What? Yes. And so if you haven't been a horse lover your entire life, we can judge those that struggle to put a halter on instead of welcoming them. And so if we can have I guess maybe redefine the culture in vet school, in externships to start welcoming those that are dabbling in a new passion instead of just letting them be present and say, oh, you're a small animal. It doesn't matter to you anyway, but maybe it does. Maybe it will matter to one student per class and that we can start pulling in more people that had never been around horses, like uh, Kelly said, didn't have the opportunity but when they were in vet school, discovered a new passion. Exactly, because people want to belong. Mm -hmm. But what do we do about the customers? Because 
I've had it in my own practice is when they encounter a new vet that maybe doesn't have a lifelong history of horses and people can sense it. They haven't been showing all their lives. They, they don't necessarily know what's going on in the show ring. And the people are like, oh yeah, I don't want them around my horse. I, I've had that in past years. And so as a practice owner, you know, on one hand, hey, let's, let's bring on new people, but our clients are putting up a wall to it. Any suggestions on how to uh, lessen the impact of that? I would say that that may not be the right practice for that veterinarian. Who's to say that they're even wanting to go into a practice that does a predominantly show population like mine really does not. And there's a lot of mixed animal practices, just your standard pleasure horses that I think that they would fit in just fine. And those people tend to be very welcoming. There are some resources from the AAEP that they prepared several years ago, outlining the different types of sport that horses are involved in and allowing people to get a little familiar with the weird differences between them. I can say that I, as the practice owner, have gone and used those. I think it's on the AAP Touchpoint page, if I'm remembering correctly. I didn't grow up with any sort of Western background. And we have some of those patients and clients. And I loathe dressage because I don't have the time or energy for the detail. So it's beautiful. I love watching it, but I needed some of those, that verbiage and that language myself. So I think that it's helped me too. So it's not just for the new associates for sure. (laughs) And I would also say getting those associates out in front of the clients in a really well thought out way is super important. I know when I started, I was giving keys to the truck and a pat on the back and a good luck. And that just doesn't, it didn't work. Um, it didn't work in some of those high-end clientele where they could, they could tell that I was super green. We've taken advantage of the fact that everybody's using Zoom and doing a lot of client education to put our newer vets out in front of clients and have them be the expert on a particular subject so that they're our go-to to the point that I'll say, you know, I need to ask Dr. McCarthy about that. Mm-hmm. That really does help to boost some of that comfort level with the newer associates. Great tips. One thing that came up in terms of the tracking, I think it was Caitlin, you were talking about signing bonuses. Like who thought about signing bonuses? And then all of a sudden this year, it's gone crazy. I know I'm just outside of Toronto, Canada and in the companion animal practices, it's astronomical, the signing bonuses and the wage inflation because of it, like starting salaries for a lot of vets in our area. And they don't necessarily be new grads, but I mean, they could just be moving to a new practice up 30% in one year. Talk to us about the signing bonuses that are going on. Yeah. So back in October, when we were writing the presentation, I just sort of did a quick search and it was interesting sort of what these sign-on bonuses or advantages were available. The sign-on bonuses ranged, you know, $1,000, $5,000. And for a new student or a new, somebody recently finished their internship, that could really help cover moving costs. I remember when I had to move cross country, I had to ask my parents for money because I didn't have any money in my bank account. It went to the extreme of one practice offering $75,000 as a sign-on bonus, and that is equivalent to some people's yearly salary. While they were less common in equine, I think something else that both the relocation bonus, but what I was shocked, we were not seeing 
more of was the benefit of student loan repayment, especially with the CARES Act. When there was over 170 jobs, there were only 17 practices that were offering that as a bonus or a benefit to practice. And I think that that is something that all practices should really consider offering. So can you just talk about that? Because that's something I wanted to talk about. I'm glad you brought it up. So just give us a little brief overview of, of what that means for a practice owner now. So I don't have the exact numbers in front of me now, but I believe that it was around $5,200 per year that 5250 I was close, that a practice could pay towards a student loan. And with the, the numbers that Amy gave for the average debt of a graduate and with the you know interest rates that are ranging, but are around 6%, that covers half of the interest. And so I know when I was paying my loans earlier, I couldn't even keep up with interest. And if you can't keep up with interest, you're not even making a dent in your principal balance. So by companies offering this, they get the tax incentive to do that. And I think in a way, like if I had a business that was giving me that much money towards my student loans, it would motivate me that much more to pay them off because I wouldn't want that benefit to go to waste. Yeah. I was looking at that like, yes, this is something that every practice should be offering me because that's, that's such a big factor. So let's shift a little bit towards retention. And I know one of you brought up very beginning a Harvard Business Review article talking about purpose, I believe it was. I don't know who it was, but maybe let's talk about that because purpose seemed to become a recurring theme through your presentation. Yeah, I'll share. Uh, I think one of the things that we know is that there are, in the Harvard Business Review study and a couple others, individuals are not just looking for pay as a form of knowing their value and being part of a team. And yes, we need to cover our our debts and we need to pay off our student loans as we just discussed, but many people feel much more connected to a clinic, to a job, to a career when they feel like they are part of that mission and the values within that practice. And so sharing the mission of a clinic, sharing your vision and your values with incoming employees I think makes a huge difference in finding a really good fit, which behooves you as the practice owner and also an associate who's looking for a new position. Um, And also helps to make sure that the, the character and the brand of the business is strong and clients are going to be happier and more willing to accept somebody new when you already know that they are aligned with your purpose and, and your mission. Fascinating. And then something else, I think you bring it up, Caitlin, was just the need for autonomy. People want to be part of the decision-making. You brought it up earlier, but let's talk about that in terms of how do we keep our staff, the the statistic that goes around 50% of new grads leave the profession in the first five years, which is an absolute sin when there's such a scarcity coming in that we're losing 50% a year. So we would do so much better if we kept everybody. We probably wouldn't be in such a crunch right now. So what what role does autonomy play in, in keeping a vet in a practice? Well, I think that people want to be in control 
of their life and the way that they practice, they don't want to be controlled. We have a standard of care with medicine, but everybody has their own finesse. And so having the ability to express the way that you like to practice within a clinic, not necessarily having to uh, practice cookie cutter medicine. I think too, you know, I've worked for a practice that I thought that I had some really great ideas that I'd like to bring to the table that I thought could influence the practice and make it better. And they were shot down. Mm. I, in that very brief moment, I lost my voice. It alienated me from the purpose of the practice. And I lost all desire because I was no longer part of the team. So while I don't have an associate with my technician, any idea that she has, I encourage her to bring it up to me. If even if I'm not going to do it, or it's not a fit for the practice, I'll tell her why. But I always want to hear what she has to say, because new people bring in new ideas, and it just helps a practice progress. Yeah, sure. It's interesting what you said, though, just because they bring up the idea doesn't mean you have to accept it. It might not be a great idea. But explaining why it may not be a great idea or how it could be modified, at least you're listening to a person, you're validating them. We all want to feel important what we do. So on the flip side of that, though, you've talked a lot about bullying and bullying in the profession. And so let's talk about that because some of the statistics that were brought up, they were like eye-raising. Yeah. I don't even know where to start with that, to be honest. I think that there are many veterinary practices that are not just toxic, but they're quite abusive. And a lot of times... It's the people that don't think there's a problem that are the ones that are doing it. And if those people are at the top, it's a trickle down effect. And the culture of the practice becomes a very bullying practice because those that are bullied, bully. So I think that it is, you know, we talked a lot about gaslighting, shutting down of people's opinions. So again, if, if an associate brought an idea, yeah, we're not going to do that here. I think. Tying into, it's got to be respectful. You were talking about men are the predominant bulliers in a practice. Women will bully other women more than they'll bully men. And so there, there just seems to be a, an undercurrent of bullying in the profession, which really doesn't, A, it should never happen anytime, but B, when we're having such a shortage of veterinarians and associates can honestly go wherever they want, yeah, bullying just, yeah, it just can't happen. It can't. And I wonder too, when we have a culture or practice where we have a bunch of bullies, we have a, a group of very unhappy people that are expressing anger, frustration, and discontent through bullying. And if we could start establishing proper and healthy forms of communication in a practice, where people's concerns are heard and they are validated, perhaps we don't get to the point where someone's only expression of discontent is to be mean. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough, yeah. And then finally, the other area that caught me, though, and again, back to you, Caitlin, we were talking about was boundaries and in terms of how to have boundaries within the practice. And, and Kelly, you had some wonderful ideas with what you do in your own practice. But we'll start with you, Caitlin, and then we'll go over to Kelly and some of her ideas. Boundaries is one of my favorite topics because I was a person that completely lacked them for a very long time. And 
you see many veterinarians in the online forums or just talking to them one-on-one expressing such frustration about what they're being asked to do by their clients or having the clinics reach out to them while they're off, having to work late hours, extra on-call. And while we can express frustration all the time, they are coming from a lack of boundaries. And so I think when we can decide what it is that we want and be able to communicate that, some ideas for me personally, I, there needs to be a lot of boundaries about like communications with clients outside of working hours. I think that that is for each individual and Kelly can speak more on, on how that works with a group practice. For me also, I have boundaries on not servicing non-clients and what it takes to be a client of mine. You don't just get to call me and say, hey, I want Dr. Daly out. Like there are a set of requirements that the client must follow. And if they don't, that's fine. They're just not going to be one of mine. And then I also think that there, again, are boundaries which are important about both verbal abuse from clients or from any any individual in a practice as well as sexual harassment. I have a no tolerance policy on that. Well, yes. And so Kelly, what were some of the examples you use in your practice? Because it sounds like you really have some great lines of <laughs> delineation of like, we're not going there. And you demonstrate it yourself. Thanks. We we do our best and we always try new things and talk about it for sure. One of the first things that I established as the practice was getting bigger and bigger is the no texting policy. Uh, and that's with clients. There's so many other forms of communication coming in that we just would be setting ourselves up for an onslaught of messages or for a missed communication where somebody feels like we haven't taken care of them. So um, I think that that's been really big and is a great way to allow myself, allow the employees when they're off, they're off. And that's sort of a client facing uh, boundary. We do something similar between each other with within the team where if we're off, we we turn our Slack channel where we communicate on mute so that we're not receiving those notifications. I have one right now that says I'm in the middle of a podcast. I, I'm not going to be able to help you until after five. Let's talk tomorrow. You know, so it's not only boundaries with clients, it's boundaries with each other because it's really easy to send a message to a doctor who's off that day and say, what did, what did you think about this case or this patient? We really try to honor and respect when it's their time off, it's their time off. We also don't have a standard nine to five. You're expected to be here sitting, waiting for the phone to ring. And I do think that's a bit of that autonomy that Caitlin talked about and just honoring that different people have different schedules. One employee has child pickup and needs to start a little bit later, finish a little bit earlier for that. Another really enjoys working out in the morning. So her day starts later so that she makes sure that she gets her exercise. Otherwise, by the end of the day, it doesn't happen. It's little things like that, that can just it seems so small. It doesn't take much. Um, you just have to communicate it with the front desk who schedules. And gosh, it can make a world of difference for people's happiness and work-life balance. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is we can have this model where we can attract and retain people. We could probably get that percentage of people that want to go into equine practice start to creep up. 
and get more and more of them. And I think as somebody was saying at the very beginning is that people are realizing that there are some progressive practices that are out there and they're, they're probably a better fit for these newer grads coming along there. But I don't think from some of the examples that you had, and I would welcome anybody who missed it to go onto the on, on demand on the AAP website there to look at the presentation and, and look at some of the reference that you have there. There's some really, I would say, simple to implement changes any practice could do as long as the leaders and the vets are like yeah this is important but none of this was like Oof, i don't see how this could work i mean this is all very doable you just have to be committed to doing it so one thing i'd like to see i'd like to see practices or practice owners when interviewing somebody what would a successful life in practice look like for you and how can i help you achieve that and on the flip side of that is new graduates, young veterinarians, seasoned veterinarians. We all need to start thinking about what makes me happy because it can't be being a veterinarian. That's only one part of it. And if the answer is, I don't know, we have to start finding that so that we have an answer to that question. So that if working out in the morning is your jam, you can go to an interview and say, this is really important to me. I don't want to start until 10. But I, as a result of that, I would be willing to do here because I think a lot of business owners have, I think they may actually be willing to be flexible. They just don't know how and they don't know what direction to take it in. And so we kind of need to tell them what we need. I think that's a good place to end there because that's a very optimistic and a very encouraging note, not just for associates, but also for practice owners. So I want to thank all, all three of you for joining. I want to thank Beringer Engelheim for the support of the AAP Practice Life podcast series. And I look forward to touching base with you about this time next year after, uh, I think it's what, San Antonio next year and uh, seeing all about it. And hopefully I'll be there live to see it too. We hope you will too. Be great to see you. Thanks. Bye. All right. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. Beringer Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine.